You're now listening to the No GPS After Sunset Podcast. It was sometime in the year 2000. I was somewhere in the Horn of Africa. Didn't have cable. Couldn't watch the progress or the digression of my beloved Toronto Raptors. But it was in Air Canada Centre and Charles Oakley was slapping the taste out of Jeff McKinnis's mouth. Former LA Clipper. Charles Oakley, of course, was a Toronto Raptor. He got suspended for a game or two, and the Global Mail asked him, Oak, that's what they called Charles, do you think they let the team down by getting suspended? He looked up and smiled. The NBA let the team down by putting it in Canada. Oh, all right, all right. This episode is the first of three that I'll be dropping for the next month or so. This podcast series, which is part and parcel of the No GPS After Sunset podcast, is entitled, I Believe Toronto Raptor Purple. What I'm attempting to do is show how the play of professional sports teams in large to mid-sized cities can and does express the values, issues, and overall spirit of a city, town, region, and sometimes country. The Raptors will help me illustrate the values that make the city of Toronto, well, Toronto and also showcase for us its many aspirations and shortfalls. So let's dive in. As a lonely purple heart, My journey as a Raptors fan began way before the team was even a thought in the late NBA commissioner David Stern's head. 1995 is the year the Raptors entered the NBA as an expansion team. But my journey as a fan started with my first trip to the movie theaters. Travel with me to 1988. Dig the scene. It takes place at Sheridan Mall's famous Players Theater when it was a shining example of multi-ethnic middle-class advancement before and after. Right around this time, my family was feeling the disastrous effects of the new North American Free Trade Agreement. My mother would tell me. That was my mother telling me my father had lost his lucrative Bay Street job. Anyways, I digress. Back to speaking about dinos. The movie was the George Lucas and Steven Spielberg executive produced The Land Before Time. My godmother had taken me and my godbrothers to go see it. It was a wondrous experience that is still etched into my memory. The memory is a vivid one. I can still recall having raisin glassettes for the first time. And I still to this day, every time I go to a movie theater, look for those raisin glassettes. And I often don't find them. But that's a vexation or a problem or an issue. I'll bring up on another episode. <laughs> Nevertheless, Littlefoot, the Land Before Time's main character, was orphaned when his mother was killed by a carnivorous T-Rex. He is forced to flee the famine and upheaval of his family's stomping grounds in search of a place called the Great Valley. An area spared from devastation, Littlefoot's hero's journey is filled with tumult and existential despair. He meets four young companions with similar backstories. They eventually brave the cold new world together, seemingly abandoned and parentless. That seems to be a theme, right? The group struggles to survive. 
They find a way when there is no way and miraculously find the land of promise by the film's end. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> Thinking back now, with the benefit of hindsight, the film was instructive for the type of relationship I would have with my dearly beloved Toronto Raptors. Many star players would abandon the franchise in its almost three decade history. Kenny Anderson would be the first player, albeit after the B.J. Armstrong no-show, to publicly say he wouldn't play for the Canadian upstart team. Among the many and varied reasons, most players viewed the Great White North as an undesirable destination because it notoriously had cold winters and sky-high tax rates. I'll discuss in more detail the effect this trend had on the city and more importantly its fan base in a bit, maybe not this episode, but for sure in part two. And if you didn't know, you may have awoken from a decade-long coma. I don't know. It happens. The Raptors would eventually reach their great valley, the promised land. But there would be many rivers to cross before we got there. It's safe to say the movie hit me with the full force of emotion that's still with me to this day, to the point to where I can use it as an analogy to understand my relationship as a fan with the Toronto Raptors. I fell in love with basketball as a young boy in the early to mid-90s, mainly due to the stellar play and marketed image of Michael Jordan. Ahmad Rashad's NBA inside stuff would introduce me to the cool swagger of the NBA every Saturday at noon on NBC. In the early to mid-90s, the sport was marketed with a type of cultural authenticity that was on par with the backpack and hardcore rap that I would come to love later in the decade. Nevertheless, I was ecstatic and over the moon in 1994 when I heard that Toronto was getting an NBA team. I remember all the noise and ruckus made over the name selection. Team names like the Beavers, Bobcats, Scorpions, and T-Rex were put into the running. I was partial to Scorpions because it sounded edgy and cool to a 10-year-old. And because of my experience with dinosaurs via a land before time and Barney, I was not trying to have my team named after one. Even if it was the ferocious T-Rex. On May 15, 1994, the team name was decided to be the Raptors. I was quickly dismayed, though with the name selection. This was during the Jurassic Park craze of the mid-1990s. I was doubly dismayed when I found out the team colors were to be purple, a color I hadn't connected to Jimi Hendrix or Prince yet. It was a color I associated with the miserly Barney, a favorite of my younger brother, a show that was habitually on in my house. I would be part of the new basketball craze taking over the city, mainly through my participation in the Jane and Finch Bell Raptor Ball League, also the Hoop It Up tournaments, and the Gus Macker in London, Ontario. With my team, the St. Bernard Bears, we would play games every Saturday afternoon at St. Francis of the Sales School Gym. Afterwards, me and my best friend would head back home on a notorious 35 bus down Jane. I fondly remember making short stopovers at Lloyd's Restaurant nearby Jane and Lawrence. My friend would pick up a bite to eat and go, and that is when I was first introduced to the world-famous Jamaican dish of jerk chicken and rice topped off with fried dumplings and plantain on the side. I never forgot it. I never did at all. I couldn't afford it back then, but when I could, I was getting it all the time. Those first couple of years were tough, though. That's to be expected of an upstart expansion team located in the peripheries of the North American sports landscape. 
The Raptors couldn't seem to find an identity outside of the Mighty Mouse, Damon Stoudemire craze that captured fans those first couple of years. Before Isaiah Thomas and eventually Stoudemire would leave in 1998, Stoudemire, of course, would win Rookie of the Year in the 95-96 season and would be a fan favorite, not just for Toronto Raptors fans, but also for my favorite sports host on TV, which was Ahmad Rashad. The team moved quickly towards multiple successful seasons when Glenn Grenwald took over the general manager position. Trading for Vince Carter in the 1998 NBA draft was the defining transitional point for the Raptors. The Raptors almost overnight went from being perennial losers to a serious playoff squad garnering a few primetime games on NBC. That 99-2000 lineup boasted players like, of course, Charles Oakley, Del Curry, the father of Steph Curry, and Antonio Davis, players who demanded respect from opposing squads. 2000 would be the year right? You remember the year 2000? The year when Charles Oakley smacked the taste out of Jeff McKennis's mouth, but I digress. <laughs> 2000 would be the year the Raptors would make their first playoff appearance. But after Grunwald left and Carter was traded, the Raptors took a turn for the worst under the leadership of Brian Colangelo, a reality that was most fully expressed on the date of January the 22nd of the year 2006, a day of infamy for all of us Raptors fans. On that snowy day, Kobe Bryant dropped his legend-making 81 points on the Raptors. Bryant, albeit we didn't know back then, was getting his payback on Jalen Rose, a beef that had been brewing ever since Rose intentionally sprained Bryant's ankles in the 2000 NBA Finals when Jalen Rose was an Indiana Pacer. Couldn't you have done that in Indiana? Kobe, rest in peace. So we felt lost when Damon Stoudemire left so suddenly. When Carter left, when McGrady left, and when countless other players refused to play for the Toronto Ball Club, lost and scorned was the feeling. Again, then you remember that snowy day in January when Kobe dropped that 81 on our heads. Ah, oh, good golly, Miss Molly. And I ain't talking about Miss Karen. Those were tough years for Toronto Raptors fans. The Calandrillo years, though, as insufferable as they were, helped us appreciate the next person who would come to help us out. And that person would be Masai Ujiri. When Masai arrived in 2013, there seemed to be a glimmer of hope. His first year as the team's president saw the Raptors boast the most wins in franchise history. Yet, it was DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry that gave me great hope. The stage was set for ever more greater things to occur under the leadership of Ujiri and his unrelenting belief in the two young players that he believed could be stars and that could take the franchise to unforeseen heights. They were amongst the first star caliber players that I heard repeatedly say they wanted to play for the Raptors, but this was a city everybody wanted to leave and not play at. A place where, even in pre-colonial times, groups, individuals, and merchants would meet up to make exchanges of all kinds and depart. It wasn't a place anybody called home. Hmm. That theme still is with us. Nevertheless, in the fall of 2018, Ujiri would address this long-held belief head-on, saying to Toronto Sports Media and the Raptors fan base, Guys, the narrative of not wanting to come to the city is gone. 
you know, like I think that's old and we should move past that. Believe in the city. Believe in yourselves. First of all, here in Toronto, we have to believe in ourselves, right? We should stop talking about coming to this city or wanting to come to this city. That's old talk and we want to win. We have the privilege and opportunity to be one of the NBA teams here. And it's our job here to try and bring the players here and try to sell it to the players. But we're proud of who we are. We're proud to have these guys. We're proud to have the young guys we have. We're proud to have all the Kyle and what everybody has done here. So I think let's be proud and let's move past that narrative of wanting to stay here or wanting to come here. But we Toronto sports fans are an insufferable bunch that suffer from an inferiority complex that could rival any other sports team fan base in North America. Sports writer Alex Wong hits the mark when he says that Raptors fans always have the feeling of waiting for the other shoe to drop whenever things are going well. And that's a defining characteristic of rooting for this team. It's for this exact reason that I... And this is a confession I must now make, went missing for long parts of the 2019 Toronto Raptors playoff run, that championship playoff run. I was riddled with so much anxiety that postseason that I intentionally went missing during the third and fourth quarter of game six of the second round. You can already put together that I missed Kawhi Leonard's game winning and series ending shot against the Joel Embiid led Philadelphia 76ers. A shot that put the Raptors into the Eastern Conference Finals. I was the fan that Alex Wan detailed as having an inferiority complex. I'll never live that moment down. Not to mention that I watched every finals game against the Warriors by myself in the dark. I was waiting for that perennial other shoe to drop. The Raptors winning and the resurgence of a boastful civic pride is merely an expression, an analog for what is happening in other economic sectors of the city. The old inferiority complex is slowly being replaced by a quiet, choked up confidence. This is the end of part one of the I Believe Toronto Raptor Purple podcast series. Stay tuned for part two. This episode of No GPS After Sunset is sponsored by Feel the Heal. At Feel the Heal, we got all types of products and services that'll maximize your life potentials. I'm talking about products and services that are designed to protect you from environmental pollutants and overall negative vibrations. We've got lavender sage, popular with woke social justice warriors, sea moss, popular with people struggling with porn addiction, Cambodian breast milk, popular with millennials who are fans of the Dave Chappelle show, and black obsidian bracelets, popular with those living around 5G Towers. Find us on Instagram at Feel the Heal. We can't wait to get you back and on track. <laughs>